Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. All right, take your Bible. Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 12. We're looking at verses 12, uh, 10, 11, 12, and 13. Uh, asking the question, what does love look like? What does it look like? It'd be fun to ask uh, young school children to draw a picture uh, with crayons. Uh, draw us a picture of love. Maybe she'd draw a picture of grandma. You know, wouldn't that be good? You like that faith, huh? Faith likes that. Maybe it'd be grandma. Maybe, uh, maybe it'd be a grandpa. Maybe it'd uh, be, uh, be something else. It would be fun to see what a, a child would draw, right? Uh, uh, what is love? A young woman, a young teen woman who was in love, her heart pitter-pattering. So she said, she said, love is that warm spot next to my heart. It feels so good, and I just can't scratch it or rub it. Well, that's not love, is it? That's not it at all. That's uh, something next to your heart could be your hot pizza you ate the night before. Your heartburn and uh, mistaken for, for this thing called love. Well, another thing, uh, especially in our oversaturated day of sexuality, well, love is certainly related to, uh, to sexual or realm. Well, it's often called love like that, but that's not the love that we're thinking of when we think, what does love look like? Well, one thing for sure, from cover to cover of our Bible, the Bible teaches us that God is a God of love. Now, that's not all that He is. He's, a, he's certainly a, a, a God of wisdom, a God of power. We look at the creation, He's a God of order and design. Whether you look through a great telescope and see far out there into the universe, or you look under a micron, uh, uh, micro, uh, an electron, uh, electronic microscope and look within the inner operations of a single cell, God is certainly a God of order and design and wisdom. He's a God of wrath as well, the Bible presents. In a day where God is simply the buddy up there, he's far more than that. He's a God of vengeance and wrath. You read the Old Testament, you see it. The greatest display of it, of course, is at Calvary, that God would so pour his wrath and the indignation of, upon his own son at Calvary's cross, the ultimate and final demonstration and display of the wrath of God. But he's more than that. He's a God of grace. He, uh, he gives gifts, and he's kind. Salvation is the great uh, gift that he gives. He's a God of mercy. Uh, kindness. He doesn't give us what we deserve. If he did, we'd be all out of here instantly, and I with you. But in midst of all of that, he's certainly a God of love. The Bible tells us that in, in God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, and, and uh, here in his love that God uh, loved us and gave his Son. In, in 1 John uh, 3, that uh, God is love. Uh, the liberal theologians will say, they, they overemphasize it to the, uh, the diminishing of these others, uh, qualities of God. But he's certainly the great lover of all. It's not Romeo. How many times have I said that? It's not Romeo. It's not the Romeo and Juliet. Oh, the great love story. And people love a story, and people love a love story. Well, the greatest lover of all is, is, is God himself, that he should so love us. Amazing when you think about it. It grips me. Well, God is love, and his church is to reflect this love. We are to do that, you know. We're to be men and women of the truth, of course, but we're to be those that reflect his love in our inner relationship with each other. Not only as we meet here, but as we, we meet each other during the week and small group and otherwise, and then as we scatter into our schools and neighborhoods and families and, and into our workplaces, we are to be the love of Christ, known and read by all people. We are to be it, incarnate, the love of Christ. It's not something we talked about last week where we work up, 
like we're doing chin-ups, and now we've got to work up to be able to get 22 of them out. It's the love of Christ within us. If you're saved, God has put it within you. And if you're walking with him, it ought to flow through you. Each one of us ought to be very concerned that we here at Grace are the loving church family that God desires us to be. And each one of us play a part in that. You're not on the periphery making comment, oh, that's not a very loving church. Each one of us are responsible to see that this happens, that we care very deeply from the heart. I love the church because it's made up of all ages and all races and all nationalities and all abilities from, from the from the least mentally able to the greatest. And we're all on the same plane. We're saved by grace. We are all given gifts to be used. I love that. You ought to feel right at home. It ought to be a haven of rest. You know, we kind of get knocked around in the world, but we gather with God's people. It ought to be like a booster shot. Some of you are into vitamins, right? Take your vitamins and wash your hands. They say that flu is, is going up and down the East Coast. And if you got a flu shot, they, they're not sure they hit the right strain with the B strain, whatever in the world that means. Uh, you know, I'm going to take a, my vitamins to get the booster shot. Well, we ought to be the boosters to each other. We ought to be like cheerleaders to each other. You can do it. Encouraging words. Look, there's enough deadbeats out there that would, could care less about any of us and would, would be happy if we just disappeared. That ought never be in the church. And, and I'll say at this point, if you have anything against anyone in this body, you ought to see them today. You ought to see them today and say, well, you know what? What I said back three months ago, that's wrong, what I said. And I've harbored bitterness or anger, or you said this or that. And deal with it and get it beyond so that it doesn't hinder the love that ought to be expressed within this local church here at Grace. It is the love of God in us. Well, Paul in Romans 12, is laying out the practical application of the gospel in your life and in mine. And he tells us how we're to reveal this love for each other. And he paints a real Rembrandt here. I mean, it is in technicolor with great vividness as to what this love ought to look like in, in, in our lives as we gather together as a church. And it's my prayer that we may be this kind of a local church where they would say, Behold, how they love one another. John 13, 35 says, By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's the great apologetic for the Christian faith. What a travesty. What a travesty it is for churches to be tearing each other apart and fighting and schismatic and divisions, and pride, and all of that. It's a Corinthian church, and it's really under discipline and judgment of God. And may we not be that. Well, Paul, in Romans 12, I'll say it one more time, this Romans is the longest gospel track, chapters 1 to 8. He writes to them, what is the gospel? It's a great place. If some of your friends and family are not saved and don't know Christ the Lord as their personal Savior. Encourage them to read on their own, Romans 1 through chapter 8. He lays it out with great pains so that people will understand that all the world is lost before holy God and under judgment. There's a heaven, there's a hell. And that God, the great lover, provided the only solution, Romans 4, 5, and 6, and 7, justification, sanctification, and finally, that great chapter 8, don't you love that? That of preservation, that God keeps those who he saves forever. It begins with, there is now no condemnation to them that are in Christ. And it ends up the end of Romans, there's no separation. What shall separate me from the love of Christ? There's no separation. What God does endures forever. He deals then in chapters 9, 10, and 11 with the question, what about Israel then? Has, has God's purpose failed there? Some call it a great parenthesis in this letter. But he really deals with the fact that God's purposes have not failed. That in the days to come, he'll once again deal with political, national Israel. Today they're in the land since May 1948, but they're like dead bones. There's no life there. Very little 
Very few Jews, a remnant, are believers. But someday God's Spirit will, will work in their hearts and there will be a great regathering spiritually of the Jewish nation in that Daniel 70th week. He comes to chapter 12, where we are, and he begins to deal very practically. It's like the great, so what? Paul, because you've said the gospel, so what? What does it matter to me? He begins by saying in verses 1 and 2 that we are to worship God. We're to give our hearts and our lives and our all to him. I beseech thee, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Then he talks about our mind. That's the battleground in verse 2. What? We're, we're not to be conformed or pressed into the world's image. There's a great battle out there, and it's in your mind. It's the Gettysburg battle, if you will. And what you feed upon, garbage in, is going to be garbage out. You feed on trash, you're going to have a trashy life. And God wants us to feed on his word and to think his thoughts after him. And following that, in verse 3, he said, we ought to have the right attitude. What? What's that? Humility. We're simply servants, and we're not to somehow strut our stuff around as if we're greater than someone else. The great example is the Lord in that. Mark 10.45 said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served. You think if anyone would have come to be served, it would have been the Son of God, right? Serve the Lord. But he set the example in his first coming. But he came to, to seek and to save and to serve that which was lost. Wow. Now, now when he comes again, he won't be like that. He comes as the mighty conqueror, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But he set the example for us, didn't he? We are to serve each other. In humility, humbleness. Humility is simply recognizing who you are in God's placement and order. Be careful. Be careful about that. Pride is an ugly thing. And then we saw in verses 4 to 8 that God gives all kinds of gifts to his body. The local church to be used. You all have a gift God has given. And it's to be used in the body for the health of the body. We need you. And the church, you need the church. It's a beautiful marriage. Well, then when he comes to, uh, to uh, uh, verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, he's dealing with this whole thing of love. Let me, let me read that. Uh, back up verse 9. Love must be sincere, hating evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, this is quite a list here. And you might think, uh, particularly in your translation, that it's sort of a... a uh, a grocery list without much connection one to the other. If you can read it in the original language, it's very structured. Some of you have taken Latin, some other know the... There are, there are nine nouns here, and they all end in the dative case. Specifically, he's describing what love in the body ought to function as. I mean, it's very, very clear. He's saying that this is how a local church ought to practice love for each other. And it's beautiful. It's not just a string of grocery lists. Like you're going to go down to, to Wegmans, right, Julie? Down to Wegmans, buy some flowers and get some eggs and something else. It's not like that. It's very structured and very clear. He's telling us, then, four descriptions of the love that should function within our church family. Paul gives specific examples of love within the church. These are, another way of thinking about it, our family duties. You know, there are duties in a family. There are. Sometimes they're not written, but uh, sometimes they are. In our family that I grew up in, they were written. My brother and I had certain duties that we had to do. If it snowed, and didn't it snow in Buffalo half the year, shovel the driveway. Take the trash out, cut the grass, do the trimming, cut the hedge, wash the windows, paint the house, put a roof on, all these things. And what? My father was old school. The men work outside, the women work inside. It worked really well. It was really simple then. You know, it's kind of confusing a little bit today. 
we'd come in exhausted from work, and my mother, those girls, they'd be up, they'd serve the table. There were seven kids, so we always had to eat in the dining room. There was not enough room in the kitchen. And my mom would cause uh, the, my sisters to hop to, and they served, and they, and they cleaned it off, did all the dishes. And after we talked for a while, then the men went out, and we did our work until it was done. And it was easy. You're out, and my mom was like that. Uh, you take everything inside, I'll take everything outside. My, and my mom's word, it was simpler in those days. It's not as simple today, amen? Not as simple. Three of you, okay? Where are the rest of you? Thinking of Mark's cake or something? <laughs> anyway, duties. Well, this is the very heart of Christianity, the very heart of the local church. Look at the first description found in verse 10. Our love for each other as a body must be a reciprocal love. Uh, here he gives in, in verse 10 two of the one another passages. Did you ever hear a series on that? There are certain phrases in the New Testament. They're the one another. I don't know if there's seven or eight of them, but here are two of them. Look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then he says, second, honor one another above yourself. Well, the first one is we're to show a devoted kindness to each other. He uses uh, two of the Greek words for love. Philadelphia is in that phrase, as well as uh, uh, storgy as, as well. Well, this indicates the close relationship of believers. The word is used of the special love that exists within the family units themselves. Blood is thicker than water. Families, family love. It's not just academic. It's just not an ideal. It's to be practiced. We're family. You know, sometimes folks will come to know the Lord, and they come out of families. There's no one there that's saved. And, and now they're immersed into a local church family. And it's just so encouraging and such a blessing. I had that same thought. My, my father didn't know Christ all those years that I was home. And and some of the men in the church, I really looked up to them as a man who loved Christ and demonstrated what a Christian man was. Wayne Gibbs, he's now in heaven, was, worked with our youth for many, many years and, and was a blessed man. And an example, he was family to me. And I needed him and a blessing. It's not based on liking. You know, I don't like that person. Look, we all have like, we're all kind of odd in our own ways. We all have our own ways. Have you noticed that? We're all sort of odd in our own ways. You say, well, that person's odd. Well, you're odd, too. We're all odd. Oddballs. That's what we, you know, sort of like that. It's not liking. It's loving. Let me put it another way. Uh, in our family of seven kids, I look at them, and some of them I think about as adults. I don't know that I would ever move in to be friends with them. You know, you go like, I don't, I don't know. They're, uh, you know... They probably think the same about me, right? But here's the point. They're family. They're family, right? I love them because they're family. My older brother weighed quite a bit more than I when I was uh, growing up. And uh, we used to get, get it on a little bit. And uh, he'd sit on me. And I could run faster than he could. But if he got a hold of me, I was in trouble. And, uh, oh, man, he'd beat the snot out of me sometimes. And I'm telling, I'd be screaming for, <laughs> a lot of times he'd do it down in the field where I was far away from home, and I was in deep trouble. But here's the point. When Peter Prosser came after me, my brother stepped right there like this. I know he's stupid. Don't hurt him. <laughs> Serious. He was there, right? He beat the snout out of me, but at point, someone outside the family, he's family. You see? And that, you know, in a, in a sort of way, that's what we ought to be for each other, you know? Say, so we're, we're all sort of odd or oddballs, you know? It's not like it's love, it's family, and we're for each other. Folks out there, many of them, most aren't, but in here we are. Amen? For each other. That's what Paul's saying. Close-knit family. It's based not on liking, but on birth. When we have and show this, this love and kindness for others, we reveal our salvation. 1 John, look at, look at 1 John 2. We, re, we reveal our salvation. 
Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. You see, we love our brothers because God has put that within our heart to do it. And it's not optional. We're not ordering pepperoni pizza and, 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 and not going with anchovies here. It's not optional. This love ought to be natural for us. First Thessalonians teaches us that, uh, that <laughs> look at what God has done with us. Now about brotherly love, Paul writes, we don't even need to write to you about it. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. That's what he's talking about in this devoted kindness. Kindness. Kindnesses that we ought to have for each other. You know that old song we'd sing, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. The fellowship of kindred minds is like that above. Kindred minds means minds of those who are spiritual kin. Now, kin is a word we don't use all that much, but it's the word for family. Kin. And you know our word for kind? Kind comes in English etymologically from the word kin. Like you're kind to your family. That's kin. That's the love that we ought to show. So we ought to be concerned for each other. The ups and downs and all around, we ought to just demonstrate that. Make a call, write a note, follow up, find people, love them, encourage them. Life can be hard, can't it? We're to treat God's family like you would treat your own family. Like my brother Dale. He's stupid, I know. Don't hurt him. Or I'll hurt you. I didn't say that, but he would say that. Well, second, he said, we're to what? Uh, honor one another. Tima, prize, is the word here. We're to prefer, be, one another. That means that uh, uh, the idea here is we're to lead the way in showing respect and honors to others. We're to honor all others above ourselves. We're to put them first. And, and the words that Paul uses here is we're the, to lead the way in it. I don't know if you're ever in a parade in a city. One time we, we, we were... We had little league baseball players. We'd have the parade, and we'd do the floats with the football team. I never led the way, but that's the idea. You lead the way in showing honor, having honor shown to others. And what that means is we have to be humble. We can't be thinking about all I'm doing, and I'm not getting recognized. Nobody mentioned my name. That's divisive, and that will hinder the body. It'll hurt the family. We're to forget about ourselves. Like our giving. When we give, we give to the Lord, right? Not letting the right hand know what the left hand is going. Beautiful imagery there. We, we give to the Lord's work, right? Forgetting about that. Not trying to make a show of it. Well, in this vein, we're not trying to make a show of ourselves. We're, we're busy. We're serving. And if we don't get recognized, so what? God doesn't miss a trick. He sees all of our labors. And someday he'll reward but in the meantime, we ought to be bending over backwards to show honor, to highly prize, lead the way, and say, boy, look at, boy, I appreciate what you're doing there and, and encouraging, and I watched you with the kids. A lot of times Rob's not here. I'll say that to Rob as he, he and David work with our teens. Boy, Rob, I see your love for the Lord and your, your hand in the life of our teens, and, and you have a great, boy, you're faithful with it, and, and we ought to do that with each and every one of us. I see something in you. Older men ought to see that with younger men who are in the thick of trying to raise young children. I see something in you. I see it. And your, your son, your daughter, they're, they're going to respond to that in time because they're early on and they're looking at you and me and wondering, how did they get this far? I don't think I'm going to make it. They need encouragement. Younger women need the encouragement from older women. Wandering in the, in, in the foxhole and, and, the, and all that happens in life, I'm not going to make today, she's wondering about. Yes, you are. And older, encouraging and being kind and preferring and recognizing. And man, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. That's what Paul's saying. This is a practical effect of love in the body working itself out, preferring one another. Now, this honor three is not the flatter. It's not the cheap flattery 
uh, words that a lot of times we hear. It's genuine appreciation, admiration for one another in God's family. I'm saying don't wait around for people to praise you. I'm not doing it. I did something and no one recognized me. That's out. That's out. That's out. Don't wait around for people to praise you. Lead the way in, in, in recognizing others. Look what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only on your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Isn't that a beautiful verse in that leading into the kenosis passage there of our attitude for each other? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Well, our love for each other must be reciprocal. There's a second description of this love that ought to function right here at Grace in your heart and mind. It's to be a spirited love. Verse 11, our love for each other must be spirited. Look how he describes it. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. We are never to lack in zeal. What does he mean by that? Whatever we do in the Lord's service is worth doing with enthusiasm and with care and zest. We're to be diligent. We're to work hard at it. It's not to be case sirrah, sirrah. We're to give ourselves. If we were in the worship team, we're giving ourselves in thought and prayer and practice to doing our very best. If it's in service behind the scene, it's not slap happy and maybe I will, maybe I won't. It's none of that. If it's helping in the Sunday school and with the children, if it's doing setup, if it's in the nursery, if it's helping with the, with the food and all that goes on, and all the various ministries that go on behind the scene, administrative and, and secretarial and those kind, we do it with zest. We do it as unto the Lord. We do it with zeal. Yeah. You know, we get all excited about our football team. You know, they won. We won. We won. Penn State won. Everyone's happy. As if we're on the team. I haven't seen any jerseys here. You know, there's we won, we won. No, I, I know what we mean by that. We, we say that too. Uh, but uh, it, with zeal and enthusiasm, a fan is a fanatic. He, and we, we say, well, that's all right. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's for the Eagles. Anybody for the Eagles here? Oh, my. Two. Okay. All right. We'll pray harder there, I guess. Why, why, why should we be like that? God is like this. God is like this. Our God is a God of intensity and passion. Intensity. Look at the creation. I mean, look at God said, and let there be light. Wham! Light. Talk about a sight and sound show. Brilliant. And how about the just the weather he brings across and snow and the thunder and the lightning? It's beautiful. I mean, God is not milquetoast at all, sort of. No, it's intensity and it's passion. And we ought to be that way in, in, in our work and in, in our involvement in the body here, whatever we do. We ought to be that way. God does it that way. How about redemption? I mean, the whole thing of the plan of the ages where Christ would be born of a woman, live, minister for three years, lay down his life in the great plan of the ages of God from the, from the foundations uh, prior you talk about high drama. There's nothing that's sort of lukewarm, sort of so-so about that. It's with passion. In fact, we're, we'll be entering, we call it the, the Passion Week. Uh, the word comes from the Greek meaning suffering, uh, that the, the Lord suffered in that last week of life. It's passion, it's intensity, it's with brilliant colors if you were to paint that. That's what God does. You think heaven's going to be boring? Oh, Lord, we've seen this already. You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen it all. The glory of heaven and the glory of the splendor of that. That's the way God is. And the blue earth, to go back to the creation, I, that, uh, the IMAX did that series a number of years ago on the blue earth. And you think about the planets and the, the heavenly bodies that are out there, and the earth is magnificent among them all. It's, of course, God made the earth inhabitable, and he put inhabitants on the earth, the atmosphere and the blue water and the, 
God is a God of passion and beauty. And you can't imagine the music that we're going to hear in heaven. I can't wait. We're used to thinking of the scale that we, you know, I took piano five years and, and you can play on very high. Wait until you hear the glory of music in heaven and God singing. How about that? Zephaniah 3.17, our God sings. You think that's, that's worth going to heaven just to hear the Lord sing. God is a God of zeal and intensity and passion, and so should we be. Here, uh, he is not speaking about commerce. The King James talks about be diligent in business, but he's not really talking about business, go and open your shop type of thing. He's talking about our industry and the way we, we carry out our zeal in, in the body. Uh, in our own life first, as, as, as being a Christian, uh, and I'll remind you that the business of our being a Christian is not to be lived in a passive, apathetic, uh, lazy way. Some of you do that. You're like a, a leaf floating down the creek. You, you put so little into your Christian walk, you're like starving to death. You're anorexic spiritually because you're not reading the Word. You're not praying. It's been a long time. And you're, you're like a, a spiritual pygmy. You know, it's like grade school. You're still in first grade, remedial first grade. Remember, they come to the end, I was sweating alone because I remember Johnny got held back. I thought, like, oh, my, they do that. They hold you back. Oh, my, that's fun. Remedial. What? What, George? What? They don't hold them back anymore? Really? Remedial first grade. Well, that's sad, huh? Remedial second. There was a time my brother... Um, my oldest brother again. Sorry, Dale. While my father had to take off work, he was in the old grammar school, and he went down, and they were going to push him on to eighth grade. He was not ready. He was not ready. And my father, I remember he had to take a day off. I said, what's that home? Oh, he had to take off work, go down, and demand the principal fail his son, or failed Dale. I said, what? Whoa. Whoa. I said, no way. He'll never make it. If the He's got to go repeat. And they, oh, no, it's going to hurt him. You know how it is, right, George? He'll never be right, won't be able to eat ice cream cones. You know, this the hill. something's going to be wrong forever. I don't care about that. I don't give a hoot about it. He's repeating the seventh grade. He had a demand, and, and it was the best thing. He ended up going on, even getting a master's degree. How about that? And my father had more sense than, anyway, I don't He's not, so we, in our spiritual life, we ought not be passive. We ought not be apathetic. We ought not to be lazy. 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 If you don't open your Bible and study the Word of God, you're lazy spiritually. And you're going to, you may be a disaster waiting to happen. I hope not. We must work at being a Christian. Work. And in our families, we have to work at being Christian dads and moms. It takes work. It takes work at a Christian marriage. It takes, takes work to raise children in the things of the Lord when we're tired and, and all the rest, and they don't always respond like we think they should. Wow. Takes takes work. Takes work. Uh, Jim Boyce quotes uh, Robert Candish, and he writes, your, your sanctification must be made a matter of business. It ought not be slothful, lazy as if it were a process to be left for itself, but with in, industriously and diligently and regularly, as if you would manage a, world, a worldly concern or business. We must give ourselves to it. It's the great enterprise. Well, we must not lack in zeal. B, we must be fervent in spirit. Fervent. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that means angry. I'm, I, I'm, I'm angry. I'm uh, sorry, Vinny. I'm Italian. I have a right to be angry. I get angry, I'm, uh, I get, I, I'm a passionate. I remember that from my neighborhoods, Vinny. I'm passionate when you're wrong, but passionate when we're hot. They're hot, they're hot. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not. He's talking about it's a Christian bubbling over. Actually, it's a, it's a bubbling over uh, in a, a white-hot zeal to serve others. That's the idea. Fervent, boiling is the word, boiling in spirit. It's the Christian bubbling over. The Christian becomes so intensely involved, it's not lukewarm, but it's kindled with zeal. We are to be just that way. Let's uh, look at Hebrews 6. Um, 
The writer of Hebrews tells us something just about that. Hebrews 6.10, God is not unjust. You will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Well, that's what we ought to be, fervent in spirit. We think of the spirited love. And then finally, see, we're to be serving the Lord. The word is the word for bondservant. Do you remember that from the Old Testament, the bondservant? In that day, it's estimated that a third to a half of the known world lived in servitude to their masters. Don't think of the Civil War type of, or pre-Civil War days type of slavery. It's not that. In that day, it was not uncommon for uh, doctors and lawyers and teachers and, and farmers to, uh, to be uh, servants of, uh, of, of the landlord and, uh, and to have to serve. Sometimes it was indebtedness. We, we file bankruptcy and we have ways of getting rid of debt. And uh, there were days they threw people in jail forever till they paid the debt. Not too good. It's hard to make an income in jail to pay off your debt and the destitution of your wife and children happened. Uh, in that day, it was very common for one to then give himself to uh, the one who he was in debt to. And so a lot of times, a, a teacher would end up teaching uh, the master's children, and they would have their family on the, on the land and all that kind of a thing. Sometimes it was more harsh and severe, of course, but a lot of it was that way. And and if a person were in debt, and then uh, at the end of seven years uh, in the nation of Israel, that if he loved his master and was content with uh, being there the rest of his life, he could voluntarily go and become a bond servant. He would go to and allow, uh, it was an early ear piercing, right? Think of all the body piercing going on. And, and an awe, like an ice pick awe, would be driven through the lobe of the ear. And that was the symbol that uh, that man in that case would become, because of love, a voluntary servant to his master all the days of his life. That's the word that's used here. It's a word that Paul uses over and over again. It's the word doulos in the Greek. And that's what we are. We are to be bondservants, serving voluntarily, not under compulsion. All right, I'll do it. I don't want to sing. But I'll, I'll do it. I can't tell pastor no. You just lost all the... I'll serve in the nursery. I don't want it. No, no. Hey, that's hey, a chance. I can do something. Oh, isn't that great? I voluntarily want to help and pitch in. And, and that ought to be the way it is in the church. And, and, and the idea is it, it's, there's a happiness. There's a love relationship. There's a need. When we get a need, we all say, we all have five people lining up. Hey, what can I do to help? I don't think I can, but uh, what can I do? And we'll put you to, put you to work. And you should want to have that response. Not looking around, hey, we got two hands, good, I'm glad they're doing it. You know, kind of like this kind of thing. It ought to be like, what can I do to help? And we're pulling together this happy service of the Lord as a bondservant. Well, we're to have this love that's not only a reciprocal love, but it ought to be a spirited love with zeal, fervency, boiling spirit, and happily serving the Lord as bondservant. Third description of the love that ought to function within our church in verse 12, our love for each other must be an enduring love. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. We live in a world that uh, the world hates Christ. There was a day when God in flesh stood here, the Creator, standing in the midst of His people. And he was utterly hated. He was nailed to the cross. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you are a follower of Him. And the world, because it cannot reach Christ any longer, will hate you. You say, well, I'm a nice guy. I'm kind. It doesn't matter. They sense within you the presence of Christ and just because of who you represent. 
Sometimes it's lions one, Christians nothing. Maybe it won't be your life, but you feel that affliction and that suffering, that rejection, where they leave you out. I'll never forget uh, uh, the story told at the men's fraternity. Greg, what was his name? Yeah. Yeah, Robert Lewis. Pastor Lewis told the story when he came to know Christ. He, he had been involved with uh, his football buddies down in Arkansas, or Texas, Arkansas. And uh, he came to know the Lord, and they'd go out to heart party hardy and all the rest that the bunch of guys would do on the off nights on the weekend. And one day they were headed down the road, and uh, he announced to all his buddies, they were off gallivanting somewhere, that he had come to know Christ. And he said, all of a sudden, the car stopped, they opened the door, and they kicked him out. And sometimes they do that. The world does that. They, they sort of don't want you there. You know, they kind of want to do what they want to do without the irritation of who you represent in their midst. You know that? Do you know what that is? There's affliction and suffering, and, and as the days unfold, it's not going to get any better. It happens. And so what, is, what does Paul tell us as a church? We're to have a love that's enduring. How do we do that? A, we're, we're to rejoice in hope. Now, hope is not the weak word that it is in English. It's a very weak word. In the, in the Greek, it's very strong. It's a confident expectation. Hope always has to do with what God has promised. God said it, and that settles it. And we fix our eyes upon it. That's, that's the hope that we have. And in the midst of trouble and affliction, we, we think of hope. What has God promised? The promises of God. And we fix our eyes upon them, even though the immediacy before us is trouble and pain and suffering and rejection at points. We fix our eyes on His promise, things that are not seen or received. With eyes of faith, we see Him with clarity. You see, we're not bound by human sight. Human sight is so limited. We live in a day that uh, believes sort of in empiricism where, where we know everything. We, we can touch, see, smell, handle. i got news for you. There's, there's the great majority of what is in existence is beyond that. I mean, if that were the case, we'd never even have radios, would we? We wouldn't know there's such a thing as radio waves or ultraviolet rays, electricity. Can't see it, but I'm not going to sit here in the dark until I figure it out. I'm going to flip the switch and turn the light on, right? I mean, that's just minor things. The frequency that we're able to see, the sound ranges that we're able to hear, it amazes me that God created some of these great birds and raptors that have incredible sight. They can fly high above of the land and yet able to look down at their next meal, hopping along. Incredible. I can hardly see Lenny in the back there. And it's fading. You know, the, the, the ways that God is in the sounds. How about a bird whistle, Right? You go around, guy blowing it, you can't hear a thing. But all the dogs in the neighborhood hear that thing, the frequency that God, I mean, we are so limited by our sensory. There's so much more out there, and we're not limited by simply our sight. We have the promises of God. And with eyes of faith, with clarity, we see them. It supports us, don't they? This hope, this living hope, when we're down, it soothes us, it comforts us when we're in beds of affliction or sick or hurt, and that's the way it ought to be. And in, the first, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the great resurrection chapter, as we come to the point of our near death and to the death of our loved ones, we're reminded of this great passage, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you, not even death, not even your own death. That 1 Corinthians 15, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In vain. It's proper that that should have its own slide there. And so we are to rejoice in hope. We hope in hope. We look forward with great expectations. 
Well, second, uh, in this enduring love, we're patient when we're afflicted. We're patient. We, re- we remain under it. And we encourage others with this enduring love who are under it and suffering and feeling persecution. We're not resigned in a fatalistic case hurrah sense, but we wait with confidence for God's resolution. And he knows all about it, and what he does is good. And yet we have to say it, though God is good, his ways are mysterious, and they're past finding out. I'm working on uh, a series in the days to come on the book of Ecclesiastes. I think it's one of the hardest books to rightfully understand in our day. And over and over and over again, that book uh, teaches us and teaches me that God is good, God is wise, and He's all-powerful, but He's a God of mystery. And you can't figure it out, though there is rhyme and reason, and He ends, what? Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. Don't become embittered with life because of things that happen. Oh, we could. Don't let it rob you of the shortness of life that each one of us have. For God is not accountable to us, and He's weaving together His purposes, and it's on multi-levels that He's doing it. Don't be embittered that you lose what? Enjoy food and drink, and enjoy life with your wife and your children, and find joy in your work. For Solomon says that's the essence of life. And it is, isn't it? Hope, hope, patience. Patient, being with those in their hours of suffering. We are not resigned to a fatalistic uh, uh, sense, but confident expectation in God's final resolution. And finally, we, uh, as C, we are to continue in praying in, uh, in our prayer life. And the idea is continue in it. And I think he nails it. He could have said a lot of things about prayer, couldn't he? I think he really nailed it with this idea of continuing in prayer. Why? Because, like Jesus said to, the, to those that were near him in Gethsemane, could, could you not, could you not even watch and pray for an hour? Sorry, Lord, wimped out again. Could you not even continue for an hour? You know, like we, uh, good intentions, right? And, no, continue to pray. In affliction, let your love dem- be demonstrated that as you pray for others and as you endure that. And may the church unite, like they did praying for Peter when he was arrested and then shocked how he was out of jail knocking at the door with Rhoda. What? A real answer to prayer? We can't believe it. He's standing at the door. Open the door. That's in the book of Acts, if you're wondering. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Continue in prayer. Continue in that. Well, our minds wander, and we neglect prayer just when we need it most. In Matthew 7, where Jesus said in three three words, ask and seek and knock, increasing intensities that we might be men and women of prayer, unwavering in our prayer life. Ask, seek, and knock. You might say, well, what's the word? Just pray and don't stop. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5. Men and women that know what it is to call on the name of the Lord and pray. And pray for one another. Even as persecution falls on some of your body. Paul is saying, this is what real love is. It really is. I remember my old professor, Dr. Rember Carter, demonstrated great love for the, ch- the church broad as uh, he had pictures on charts of all these pastors that were in those days behind the Iron Curtain. Some of them were in the Gulag in Siberia and other places. And he would pray, you know, those Russian names are about yay long, and they have all sorts of letters next to each other without vowels. Have you ever noticed that? How in the world do you say those? He knew them all by name. He knew their families. And his prayer life was such, he prayed for the church that was suffering. And when they were finally released, many of them, some of them died. Uh, some of the Romanians, and some of the Russian, Ukrainian pastors of, of uh, not too many decades ago. 
And Mark, you may remember that too as well. He prayed and prayed, and finally, I have to believe that was part of the reason why the, uh, the Iron Curtain fell as it did. It was, an, it was a spiritual victory. And God brought the walls tumbling down and answered finally to the prayers of Dr. Carter for on their behalf in their hour of suffering. It went on for years and years and years for these behind the, uh, the suffering. You know, and if that happened here, I thought about that. You know, they came and arrested. I, I would gladly go and be in prison. I would take it as a change of venue for ministry. You know, and that's the right view. God is in charge of all things. If it's uh, in prison, then, then I will be there. And if I were the first, then I would be the first. God is in charge. And I would count on all of your prayers for me. And if they took all the elders next and all the deacons, and all the, then we'd all be scattered and have different ministries. But we would count on your prayers. That's political. And some of you have family, and some of you have been disenfranchised and suffering persecution and cut off, as it were. We pray for you and love you. And I've known many, many people through the years. The body is so utterly important in caring for each other with this enduring sense of love. And finally, verse 13, the last description of this love that ought to function within our church. Uh, Paul writes, verse 13, uh, he says, Share with God's people who are in need, practicing hospitality. It's a sharing love. I mean, love at the very end of the, at the very least, has to be sharing, right? It's sharing. It gives. That's the love he gave. It's sharing. This love participates in the needs of the saints. If others are in need, it's a terrible thing for us to harden our hearts and, and not try and help each other. Something is dreadfully wrong, spiritually wrong in, in a body in an earthly family, but how much more in God's family? You and I are to give of our resources and identify with them in their trouble. Share what you have with those who are lacking. It means uh, our dollars, but it may mean our time. It may mean our sympathy. It may mean our presence. We're to mourn with those who mourn. We, we identify with them. We, we rejoice with those who rejoice. Of course, that's easy. That's easy. We had all our babies up here today. That's fun. That's, that's wonderful. But we're to mourn with those who go through those seasons of mourning and suffer. I mean, like Vinny's brother died the other week, and we pray for you, Vinny, and your family. And we just heard of Carol's passing this morning, and, and pray for Dick and their family. I mean, I mean 150,000 people in the world die every single day. 150,000! Just pure mathematics. People are sick and, and dying. And Listen, we live in the land of the dying. This is not the land of the living. Have you noticed? It's the land of the dying. We're going to the land of the living if you know Christ as your Savior. And people need help and they're suffering. And we need to identify with them. We need to care for them. We need to make a meal. We need to make sure we're clothed. We need to make sure their bills are fed. We need to identify them with the whole gamut of life. And even more than that, he ends with this thought, he, says, he closes with practice hospitality. He simply means there that we're to expend this, extend this hospitality even to, to those that might be traveling. The idea is in, in, that, in that day, of uh, Paul's day, a lot of times uh, Christians would be traveling and you didn't have Hampton Inns and Holiday Inns and Ramada Inns and all the inns that we have today. A lot of times the the places that people lodged were filled with immorality. You'd never go in, in those places. The taverns would feed, and they'd have one open area upstairs with uh, people would lay out on the floor and all kinds of cavorting and other things going on. And so well, the Christians would open their homes and show love for those in need of lodging in, in a meal and do that. And so we ought to do that. And the way, the way that Paul puts this is that we're not to be sort of passive. We're to be actively pursuing. It's the word pursue. In the Greek. We're to pursue those that we have an, even inkling have a need of housing, food, shelter, or just to be with them during their hour of mourning, suffering, or, or affliction. Ours is to be a love that shares, and we're to be pursuing 
uh, in that. Well, what are some lessons for our life as we close? Number one, our church must be, I emphasize, must be a loving, caring, compassionate church family. Must be. It's not, a, it's not, it's not optional. We must be that. And every one of us plays a very important part in that. You're either a part of the solution or you're part of the problem. We must be that. If we're going to have the blessing and favor of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must be. Number two, for Grace Church to be such a church, each of us must humbly deny ourselves. Get your eyes off your own self. You know what? That's the essence of life anyway. It's not you. You're not the reason for it. It's not the accumulation of all the toys. That's not life. You know, that you become a slave to, uh, to all that kind of thing. It's in giving. It's in serving. It's in self-denial. Blessed are you when you give. The Lord Jesus said that. It's the giving of your time, your talent, your encouragement, your words, your presence, your dollars, your, your possessions, that's where the joy in life comes, in giving. And we, we need to be that, spontaneous as we see it, careful and prayerful. Let's deny ourselves. Number three, as you serve the Lord here, there ought to be a spirit of happiness and joy. I love it when I hear our church family joy, joyous and spontaneous clapping and happy and jo- there's a joy we gather to worship the lord to hear his word and there's a joy in just being together and and uh, it's radiant it's beautiful just like in a person's life don't you love to be around joyful people it's a beautiful thing really who likes to be around an old misery crank i don't think so do i have to you know most of us avoid that person right Churches have personalities, right? Now, let's not be a church that I'm, I'm not going there. There's something wrong with those people. Boy, you could cut it with a knife. No. We're going to be a joyful, happy, loving church that people can't wait to be together and to serve together. That's what Paul's talking about. Number four, seek out those who have special needs and strive to meet them. The word is pursue. Pursue them. Now, sometimes, a lot of times we don't know. We're not aware of. Get the antenna up there. Look around. You like to live indoors, do you? Not too many year-round Boy Scouts here, right? Live indoors. You like to eat. You like to be clothed. You like to be encouraged. You, you sense that someone's lonely, Lord. Maybe, maybe they need a little time to be encouraged. Right? Pursue them. Pursue it. They have lodging needs or whatever. Let's be that kind of church. That's what God is doing. And He's put that within you if you're saved. And He wants to, that to be manifested. Strive to meet those needs. And if you'll do that, boy, what a blessed church will be. Number five and last. Today, maybe, maybe you're here and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't know. I wish... All your eyes would turn like chartreuse or something. We could say, yeah, you're saved. You know the Lord. You're in. No problem. But you may not. You may be here and you may have heard the gospel, you know, a thousand times. That Christ came to die for sinful men and women to pay the price to satisfy the wrath of God that hung over every one of us. The Bible says that, that all of us are born in sin. Because of that, the wages of sin is death. And there's a heaven to gain. And it's not through keeping the Ten Commandments or the law or any of it. You can't. Impossible. Christ gave his own son to make the payment for sin. What you must, with open, outstretched, empty hands, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Lord, I receive you as my own. Thank you for dying in my place. If you'll believe that, confessing your unworthiness because of your sin, God will save you today. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be something? What does love look like? It's not that warm feeling in the heart. It's not that. I felt that. I remember when I fell in love with Faith. I, I was smitten utterly. Utterly smitten. She was my friend for a long time in college. 
And uh, I finally, finally fell head over heels. I couldn't think about my upper theology classes and all the rest. I was utterly smitten. I know what that warm feeling is. It's wonderful, those endorphins and and you know, I just kind of walk, I kind of like, it's like on the beach, right? And it's like slow mu- music going. You're just kind of like, that's the kind of love. That's not this, all right? That's not this. This is beautiful love that God describes, and that's the kind of church we need to be.